Welcome to the Get Sob Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. We're joined today by Anthony Caruana, the CEO of MediaWise, and also writer, presenter, facilitator, journalist, media trainer, and consultant. Back in May, when Amy Holden and I were recording our episode for the OzCert podcast, which Anthony was hosting, we got talking about crisis comms. Crisis communications should be a part of any incident response plan. In this episode, Anthony talks us through what good crisis communications can do as part of an incident response, how to approach comms when the media will be involved, the thinking around crisis comms for different organization sizes and verticals, what order comms should happen in, who are the best spokespeople, and hint that can change depending on what's happening, DIY versus external support for comms, and all of this is littered with Anthony's stories from the trenches. Over to the conversation. I'm joined today by Anthony Caruana, the CEO of MediaWise, um, writer, presenter, facilitator, journalist, media trainer, uh, does a lot of different things. How are you going today, Anthony? Going really well, mate. How are you doing? I am doing well, thank you. Doing well. Um, we're in different cities. I know you're down in Melbourne today. How's everything down there? Um, it's been an interesting day. I'm not sure what day this is being released, but we found out that we're at least a couple of weeks off having any relaxation of restrictions here. So Father's Day will be spent in isolation and, uh, you know, missing my daughter's birthday and a few other things. So it is a bit uh, bit hard going down here at one level, but on the other level, look, other things are much better. The weather's getting better, so we're out a lot more and swings and roundabouts, I guess. I, I definitely get you. It's first day of spring, right? And uh, I went for a little jog at lunchtime and, oh man, it's, uh, it is already warm in Sydney. So spring has sprung. That's good. Um. So look, we always start with the the guests, kind of just giving the audience just a bit of an intro. You know, how did you get to where you are today as CEO of MediaWise? Um, and I was kind of joking before we start recording that, I, you know, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and it's a long and windy road. But uh, yeah, it'd be great to just get a, a background on, on how you ended up where you are today, Anthony. Look, it's definitely been very long and windy. Um, if someone had asked me when I finished school, would I be doing what I'm doing today? I would have probably slapped them in the head and told them that was a big joke. Um so when I left high school, I wanted to be a scientist. So I went off and studied science. Um, interestingly enough, Australia's not a really great place to be a scientist, or it wasn't in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, so those who can't do, teach. So I became a school teacher, and I did that for a while. And honestly, at that stage, I was just working in a school where I wasn't having a lot of fun. I wasn't really enjoying the job, and I took the first job I could get out of the place, and that was in the commercial world doing some training. Um, so this was in the 90s, late 90s, where the internet was but a babe and no one really knew what to do. So I was teaching people how to use Word use Word and Excel and how to use a web browser and save bookmarks and do email. And that's kind of where that started. And then from there, I ended up going to one of my clients and ended up working in the, in the dairy industry in manufacturing. And that led to a job where I was running training within that organization for a while. Then I ended up in IT and doing, ended up in the business analytics part of the business. It was, don't even ask how I got there, but somehow that happened. Um, it was one of those things. Um, I left that organization, went into the energy industry, um, mainly to work around um, a particular platform and some training, and then ended up running some development projects and stuff like that. Did a whole bunch of different things over 10 years. And in the middle of that time, um, I've, I've been doing some writing just for fun. And a friend of mine was going away on a trip overseas who was a journalist. And she said, um, 
oh, I can't cover the two things I've got to write for this magazine next month. Can you do them? And I said, sure, why not? And I did them. And then the editor asked me to send an invoice. And I said, oh, I'm going to get paid for this and everything. And that was kind of the beginning of working as a freelance writer is I realized that I had this skill um, that people were prepared to pay for. And I kind of just did that on the side for a few, quite a few years. And then I, you know, you get to that stage in your life where you go, well, if I don't try this now, I'm never going to do it. Mm. So I bailed out of the reliable world world of, you know, being a full-time employee with a good salary and superannuation and, you know, annual leave and all that stuff. And I bailed and went out and hung my own shingle as a freelance writer. Did that for quite a long time and it went really, really well. I, you know, managed to keep kids in school and shoes on feet and all that sort of stuff. And then, um, look, three years ago or so, a friend of mine who, Catherine, Catherine and I were kind of shooting the breeze one day and she was lamenting the how hard it was to get journalists to write stories about a lot of about some of her clients in PR. And I said, well, wouldn't it be great if they could actually tell their stories really well? Because most of them are just really poor at talking about what they do. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of companies, my first question to everyone almost always was, what do you do? And what makes you different from all the other people that do something like what you do? And almost no one could answer that very simple, what I thought was a very simple question. Hmm. And that led us into doing media training. Um, so we hung a shingle as media wise and we opened up really with the focus on purely on media training. Um, but out of that, a whole bunch of our clients said, hey, that was really good. We want to do the next bit. Can you do our PR for us? And we've now, over the last three years, become a, a full PR agency doing crisis comms, doing everyday comms for companies, PR. We write website copy for people. Um, we've got clients, list, um, you know, ASX-listed companies. We're dealing with a NASDAQ-listed company. We've got companies in Silicon Valley, across Australia. So we've kind of gone from you know, almost an in-anger idea between two people of let's fix a problem to something much bigger um, with a team and all sorts of stuff going on now. Which is pretty cool. And and today's crisis comms, you know, we got we got chatting at OzCert, uh when it was, we, we the roles were reversed. Uh, myself and Amy <laughs> Holden, uh, you had us on for the OzCert podcast. And, um, you know, when we're in the room, you kind of mentioned that you were doing the crisis comms and, you know, we got chatting about that. Um, so that, you know, I was very keen to kind of dig into that specifically and, um, you know, like every organization these days, or, or let's, let's be honest, many organizations will have some sort of an incident response plan, or at least know that they're supposed to. And in pretty much every bit of liter literature I've ever kind of read about this stuff, they recommend having a commerce plan as part of that. And so like, before we kind of get into this stuff and kind of really dig into it, um, what do you think the comms part of an I or an incident response, like, what does that hope to achieve at a high level? Look. Mike, I've, I've worked in organizations that have gone through a crisis, more than one, uh, more than one organization, and sometimes more than one crisis in that organization. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that I've learned, both through my own action and by observing others, is that almost always the first thing you do in a crisis typically makes things worse. Um, the human re instinct to react and do something often leads to making a pretty bad decision early on. Um, and in crisis comms, that might be something like um, you get asked a question. Let's say your, your organization gets breached or it gets hit with a ransomware attack or you think it's a ransomware attack is probably more accurate. The first question, someone's going to say, what happened? And your first answer is, do you want to tell someone what actually happened? And you probably don't know. 
So you you have a stab in the dark at what that might be, um, and it doesn't and it's not right. Um, and then you've got to either recant that later or explain that you know that person didn't have all the data at that moment and made a bad you know made a bad call or whatever it is. So almost yep. always the plan's got to start with shut up and take a breath. <laughs> you know that, I think that's the first thing people have to do, and that's where you need to start with your plan. And do you think there's a huge pressure? Um... So, like, one of the things you kind of see a lot of reporting on is the, hey, they're not saying anything about the the breach or, you know, what's happened. We know something's happened, but they're not saying anything. And there's a tendency then for the, the vacuum to get filled in by stuff, you know, speculation that be- potentially becomes, starts to feel like truth sometimes. Um, like, how do you how do you deal with that? You know, you, you're saying don't say anything, but at the same time, if you don't say anything, like, there's a vacuum that's created. Yeah, look, it's not about saying nothing. It's about saying yeah. what you know. Yep. Um, we, we always say to people, look, when you're talking, when you're in a crisis, there's probably three things you really need to avoid doing. One is you've got to avoid exaggerating. So if if you've been hit, you know, it might have been sometimes the case is that one workstation gets hit and one user's machine gets ransomware or whatever. So they pick up the phone and they talk to a mate and say, oh, my bloody computer's down. I've been ransomware. And that friend tells another friend and all of a sudden there's a ransomware the story is that you've got a ransomware attack inside your business. And the reality is you don't. Um, and it becomes exaggerated pretty quickly. The other thing is that people often extrapolate and go, um, they might see two bits of unrelated news. They might say, you know, for example, last year, the, the Australian government said, you know, we're under a heavy cyber attack um, from a foreign, from another, from a foreign government. Um, so, and people's reaction is, oh, foreign government's making an attack. We've just been hit. Oh my gosh, they're after us. And they put, you know, they put two two together, and they get an yeah. apple. You know, they they go completely pear shaped on it to you know, keep the fruit going. Or people just guess. Yeah. You know, something goes pear shaped, and they, you know, like if we look at what happened to the census five years ago. Um, people were guessing what happened in that initial thing. Was that a D? Was that a DDoS attack? Mm-hmm. Was it a poorly configured system? What was it? And in that first few hours, everyone just guessed what it was, and that became and the guess became the story. So don't don't guess when you don't know what's going on. Say, you know, the incident happened. This is what we think's happened. This is what we know has happened. You know, a workstation was compromised. Twelve workstations were compromised. We took the following action. We did thing A, thing B, thing C. That's all we know at this moment. When we know more, we will tell you more. You know, and if anyone else tells you they think they know what's going on. They're making it up because the definitive source of, of information needs to come from you as the person inside the crisis. So it's like basically controlling the narrative and, and getting ahead of any of the, the, the fluff or nonsense that might kind of get generated in the media. Yeah, or, and it does or happen. Elsewhere. Yeah, well, and, and elsewhere. Yep. And what's interesting is our experience is we've done some work with a number of organisations going through crisis. And most of the time, the crisis doesn't hit the media. So, you know, you've got to make sure you don't jump the gun and go, we've been breached, we better tell, we better tell the media before they come to us. Mm. Um, there are other things you may need to do first, like triage. Yeah, you would hope. Wait, but how does social media play into this, right? Because you sort of see, I mean, for me, I get a lot of my news on LinkedIn and quite often it's, you know, it's opinions and it's people who I, I kind of trust at some mm. level. Um, and often, you know, on LinkedIn, in my news stream, I'll see people speculating, making comments on, on what has happened or what's you know, not happened. 
Um, is that stuff that you can control or like have any thoughts on that? Look, I mean, social media is, you know, it's a, it's an interesting beast. Mm. Um, it tends to be a bit of a self, self-feeding animal. Um, you know, it hears one thing, someone retweets it or reposts it, and then suddenly when if 100 people do it, it becomes truth by volume, not truth by actual fact. Um, when that starts happening is you've literally got to have someone who sits there and go, actually, that's not right. You don't, we don't know that that's, we don't know what's going on. Or the actual facts are at, you know, 14 minutes past nine, we detected an infected workstation. At 16 minutes past nine, we closed the network down. At 18 minutes past nine, we did this thing. And you come back at it and you just lay out facts because it's very, you know, you can bring your own opinions to anything, but you can't bring your own facts unless you're the American president, I guess. But but you really you you facts are facts are absolute and you've got to deal in absolutes. You can't deal in speculation. Do you think we we suffer a little bit from um you know look there's a history of some companies either uh doing the, you know, look over there, nothing's happening, or waiting mm-hmm. too long to make any kind of comments to, to you know, the, to the point where people are maybe a little bit cynical when there is commentary mm-hmm. or there's no commentary. Um that, you know, there's an organization that's running a playbook for comms, but actually mm-hmm. they maybe already know what's going on. They just don't want to say. Look, when you're when you're the company going through the crisis, you have to decide where your priorities lie. Mm. Um, and that might be we're going to give accurate information every 30 minutes and we'll post it on our website or we'll post it on social or whatever. You make it obvious, you make people know that there's a channel and when there's when there's new information, this is where it will be. Um, the last thing you want to be doing is taking a phone call every eight minutes mm. or more when you're in the middle of trying to fix a problem. And that's probably where having a plan makes a very big difference because you need to actually plan not just what you're going to do, but who's going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, those plans, you know, when we were chatting before we started recording, one of the questions I kind of was thinking of, like, does this apply to organizations when you hit a certain size or are there verticals where this is particularly appropriate, you know, maybe more visible or verticals where their reputation maybe is more valuable and um, yeah, they have a higher profile. Like what are your thoughts there? Look, I think everyone needs a plan Mm. to deal with an incident. I mean, you know, we're, we're a relatively small company, but we, we have a plan that says, here's how we're going to communicate. If something goes pear shaped, you know, if our messaging platform disappears, here's what we're going to do. You know, if it gets, if, if it's hacked because, you know, like everyone, we use a bunch of cloud services. If the cloud service goes down, we need a plan B. And this is almost, this is similar. It's just being prepared for whatever's going to, you know, if something happens, what are we going to do about it? And there's some things you can plan for. Well, look, look, when to talk about a plan, I think there's probably three key elements that you need to think about in terms of a comms plan during an, during an incident response. One is who are you going to contact? Right? And who's going to know what? So, for example, you might need to have a particular message that goes to staff. Um, and typically the kind of message that goes to staff is there is an incident in progress. We have a nominated spokesperson. If anyone contacts you, you need to dele- you need to actually refer them to the delegated spokesperson and not answer questions. Um, look, when I, I was involved in a system incident once and it was a very significant one. It had national repercussions um, and we literally had angry consumers and journalists banging on the receptionist door. We locked reception down, not just to physically protect the receptionist, but also to make sure that 
someone walking past didn't say something in anger or say something out loud that they ought not hear. Because sometimes you've been in incidents where there's a lot of thinking that goes on. There's a lot of thinking out loud. And the last thing you want is the thinking out loud to actually get outside the door as well while you're trying to work out what you're going to do next. I mean, you obviously do need a comms plan for media. um, And the comms plan for media may well be only if the media comes to you because you don't have to go to the media if something happens. Mm. Um, We dealt with a client recently who had a very significant breach um, and we had a media plan for them. Um, but we never used it. But it didn't mean it wasn't... It, would, the, it means they can use it next time because now they've got the plan. The, the challenge for that organisation was they got breached um, quite significantly, but they didn't have any plan on what to do for anything. Um, so you've obviously got staff, media, suppliers, customers. Mm. Um, you need to have plans in place because obviously now the way we look at supply chain is very different. And just because you didn't get... You, just because you got breached doesn't mean that your customers are immune or your suppliers are immune, or you may have been breached because of something that happened with one of them. So you've got to be able to have those lines of communication available and ready. Obviously, you've got regulators. Um, depending on the nature of the breach, you may have to notify the Office of the Australian Information Commission, um, Privacy Commissioner and all those sorts of things. Um, there's speculation now that ransomware attacks are going to need to be reported. Um, and that's an interesting one because... I think some of the draft legislation or, or some of the thought bubbles I've seen around that say that you need to notify within 24 hours or thereabouts. Um, that would be very interesting because I reckon most people in the middle of a ransomware incident are going to be too busy dealing with the incident rather than trying to work out which bit of paperwork to fill in for the government. Um, and obviously you may have to involve law enforcement depending on what's going on. So you need plans for all of these. And with what plans you have will depend on what kind of industry you're in. If you don't have to talk to regulators, for example, you don't need to deal with, you may not need a law enforcement comms plan. You probably need one for customers and suppliers at a minimum to give them confidence that you actually have protected their information and that you will be able to continue trading. Um, Once you know who you're going to contact, you've got to know when you're going to contact them. Like what are the trigger points for telling certain people what they need to know? And then you need to actually have how you're going to contact them. Um, and you probably can't rely on email because if you've been pinged, you may not have an email server that you can access, for example. So you need to make sure that you've got multiple lines of communication available to you, and whether that's email, phone. I mean, that's the great thing about social. You, social becomes a viable um, conduit yep. for communicating. Um, I know that during natural disasters now, the various agencies in Australia use social media because it's able to scale way better than they are to deal with the tens of thousands of potential messages that they're going to receive and inquiries they receive. So it's, it's basic who, what, when. So here's a question as you talk through that. Is there, in my mind, I'm, I'm building almost a logic flow chart of, to your point, if this, if this, then that, if that, then yeah. this. <laughs> if I can get the if words this, out of my that. Yeah, yeah, you could probably, there's a good online service that you could create called I, If This Then I That. I think there might be. Um, <laughs> but I guess the, the question here is, though, it's not one plan, right? Or maybe it's one plan with lots of choice points along the way, because it depends, yeah. to your point, if it's one machine, cool, like that's one thing. If it's a whole organization taken down, there's no way to communicate outside, that's another thing. Data breach versus, um, you know, denial of service. But like, there's so many different types of things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we did a comms plan for a, one of a, for a very large ASX listed company recently, a disaster comms plan, and we said you've got to take this disaster comms plan and you've actually got to embed it inside your disaster or business continuity planning. So it's the start; it's got to fit in with all of that as well. So it can't be you can't just execute it in isolation. 
But I mean, DR plans contemplate different scenarios or business continuity yep. plans. They contemplate different scenarios. So you have comms plans, you have a comms plan that integrates with those to, to complement those specific scenarios. I mean, when I've done um, business continuity plans, when I've been an IT manager in the past, um, you know, I, t- I typically worked on scenarios that were like, what are the things that are going to only hit us for half a day or a day? What are the things that are going to affect us for a week? And what are the things that are going to affect us for three, you know, for, month, for more than a week? You know, and we'll do and talk about, right, is it system access? Is it physical building access? And all sorts of different. So I used to plan all those different scenarios out. And then the trick is to go, right, now I know what all my, I know what scenarios I'm anticipating from a business continuity or incident response perspective. Now, what are the comms that are going to support those activities? Yeah, so definitely. It's, it's nuanced. It's, yeah. And it's, con- it's context specific. It's organization specific. And you've just talked about the comms, but then the people doing the comms are probably very important too. Like, who are the people? Who are the people who are best suited to that sort of in the moment spokesperson role? And does that change depending on what's happened, severity, impact, etc.? Look, um, to, to a degree, yes. It depends on the nature of the incident. There's basically two schools of thought on this, um, and it becomes a bit of a um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a thunderdome to decide which one you're going to go with out of these two things. Um, you can either go with your established spokesperson. So an example of that might be you might have your CEO might be your primary spokesperson or it might be uh, you might actually have a comms manager who becomes the primary spokesperson, someone like that. Um, all of that, those are viable options because they're probably media trained and prepared and they've been, with some luck, they'll probably have rehearsed these different, some of these different scenarios, which is what they ought to have done. So that's your plan A or a, that's plan one, if you like. Option two is you pick someone no one's ever met before um, and you, you effectively have a disposable spokesperson who comes in, does all the comms for that entire incident, and when the incident's over, they're never seen or heard from ever again, basically. Um, now, the, ben- the, the, the benefit of doing that is your CEO will... Because if it's not your CEO or the regular spokesperson, they're not going to be exposed to questions about that incident in future because they weren't the person on the spot during that incident. Or you keep it anonymous and you go, look, we have a company spokesman and a spokesperson and we put everything out via written statements. And we just say, yep. attribute this to a, you know, garrettohara.com spokesperson or something like that. Um, so either Both approaches are valid depending on your organisation and what you want to do. But like, I'll give you an example. I interviewed the CEO of a, of a major retailer some a few years ago now and they'd been breached about three years before. And it's reasonable to say that the breach was not handled particularly well. Um, it was before we had breach notification or data, the data breach notification regime that we have today in Australia. And they didn't disclose the breach for about two or three years. In fact, they didn't disclose it until it was leaked and the media found out about it. So I asked him a couple of years after this had all happened, I asked the CEO of the organization, so tell me about that incident. Um, you guys got pinged. What have you done since then? And he went into complete defensive mode at that moment and said, I'm not going to talk about that. And he actually, he had a um, he had someone else on the phone with him and he threw them under the bus um, for the call. But that's the risk you take by having, if you've got an incident, that's the risk you take by having your, you know, one of your regular spokesperson out there all the time because they get asked. Um but if it's someone else, people tend to disassociate because it's not the same person. 
Yeah, so it could kind of be a buffer in terms of the well, the questions, but also the potential the personal level reputation of that, you know, the senior leadership within yeah. the organization. They don't get tied into the, you know, the breach comms per se. Yeah, look, I was involved in an incident some years ago where the CEO of the organization ended up on the 730 report and um, basically bombed the interview after this incident. And it did immeasurable damage to that individual's reputation, so much so that ultimately they were not renewed as CEO fairly quickly um, and ended up taking having to you know effectively leave the industry not long after. Um, so it can have very devastating personal repercussions if you've got the wrong spokesperson. I wonder, is there a role out there for like a stunt spokesperson that could just smoke <laughs> jump in you know do the do the horrible delivery of all the, the bad news and then leave um you know as a as a contractor yeah look, look, yeah, look maybe i might i think what you really need to do is make sure that the whoever you put up and it doesn't matter whether you're putting in a a one-time spokesperson or your regular spokesperson in it, they've got to do they've got to be ready um this is why this is one of the things where we focused on media training so heavily at the beginning is so many spokespeople think they can just rock up and the magic will happen. And it doesn't just happen magically. You know, the, the reason the prime minister or, you know, high profile politicians are able to get their messages across in the media is because they've trained and practiced. Like they've thought about what they're going to say. They've said it in rehearsal many, many times so that when they say it, they don't have to think about it. Um, you know, it's one of, one of the things we do in our media training is we talk about taking people from unconscious from conscious incompetence where they've got no idea what they're doing. They don't even know. It's not even that they don't know what they're doing. They don't even know what it is that they're meant to be doing through to this stage where they've got unconscious competence, where stuff just happens, you know, it just happens naturally. It's like watching me play tennis and watching Roger Federer play tennis. I'm on the far left-hand side of the scale and he's on the other side where he just picks up the racket and whacks the ball and it, and it, it happens. I pick up the racket and whack the ball and end up with a concussion. You know, it's 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 that far apart, and prep, it's about training and preparation. Yeah, definitely. Watching the West Wing at the moment, and um, that's one of the oh, things it. that's fascinated me. Yeah, it's just watching the uh, the prep for the president, where they you know they they go off to his Camp David and they literally replicate the you know the um yeah, the date the, the, the debate yeah. preparation in season Bombard six. Him, try and catch him out, and just keep on doing it, keep on doing it until, to your mm. point, yeah, it's sort of second nature. Yeah. I'm given. You know, like if you, you've just kind of described a, I suppose, not complex, but like there's a reasonable amount of effort involved in in prep potentially, and um, like so where my head goes then is like crisis comms or you know that communications planning is that something you think organisations can kind of tackle themselves like going to the uh, the post office for you know your your last will you know you fill out the template and away you go, uh, you know DIY or like is that better left to kind of engage those external organisations for that support. Uh, look, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking mm. about, um, for some things, for example, if you're talking about um, preparing communications for customers, suppliers, potentially for regulators, for staff, you can prepare those well ahead of time. Um, you know, we all go through that thing where if you're in a position, if you're doing something you've never done before, you, you burn a lot of brain cycles getting those things, getting ready for it and actually executing but if you can simplify a lot of those things by thinking about them well ahead of time and preparing them, then you save yourself a bunch of time. So, you know, an example is if we're going to suffer, let's say you suffer a, a um, extortionware attack 
pretty common these days where you get ransomware and your data gets exfiltrated with the threat of publication. It's a pretty common threat these days. If you're a retailer, you should be ready for that. And you should have a plan that says, if this happens, here is our customer communication that explains what happened, or when it happened, what happened, and that your data has potentially been exfiltrated to some external source. However, it was encrypted. So it's the data's out there, but no one can access it. Assuming you've done the right things and encrypted your data and all that sort of stuff. So you can have those things ready because the last thing you want to do is be in the middle of dealing with the actual crisis of, you know, dealing with firewalls and people and all that, all the other stuff, all that massive hive of activity. And the last thing you want to be doing is drafting emails yeah. or letters, you know, because you may have to physically do these as letters with 24-hour postage because you might not have email. You know, what's your plan? Have it ready, ready to go so that you can push stuff out really, really quickly. The, be ready, you know, the, the more prepared you are, the less likely you are to make a mistake and send a mistake, send an email out with a typo or yeah. something like that. And, you know, you know, it's, sometimes it's just a grammar problem and it can create huge amounts of confusion. Yeah, no, I definitely get that. Um, so look, it sounds like the recommendation is if you, if you think about it far enough out, you can potentially tackle some of this early yourself and, yeah. and then... Yeah, like you're less reliant on those external engagements uh, with with companies like yourselves, I suppose. For yeah, and look, look, that's a part of what we do is we 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 go into an organisation and we might spend a few days on this and say, yep. right, here's here are the scenarios, and we will brainstorm what are all the things that could happen to your organisation. So it might be, I mean, there's some obvious ones. There's things like data breaches and ransomware attacks and DDoS and there's all that sort of stuff. But what are some of the other things that, you know, what's, what's some of the reputational damage? Like disgruntled employee takes over your social. Um, you know, we had that, that famous incident some years ago where um, the guy calling out a tweet heads, um, who was a former employee, left himself some access to the system and reversed the sewage pumps um, and pumped raw sewage into the streets um, after, he'd been, after he'd been let go by the organisation. You know, What's your scenario for dealing with the grumpy employee who's been fired summarily? You know, apart from the fact you make sure you've got all your good security controls in place so that doesn't happen. Yeah. But what's your what if? What do you do with the disgruntled employee? What do you do? You know, we'd say to people, what do you do about glass door reviews? Where, dis- where disgruntled employees start ma- mouthing off and giving up stuff about the organisation through glass door anonymously. There's, there's so many different things you need to think about. What's your response to them? And not all of them will have a media response or a customer response, but you need to have a plan that says maybe we do, maybe your plan is do nothing, but think about the do nothing before you have to think about it under pressure. Yeah, and the crisis, I mean, they're different sizes. They're not all, it's yeah. not all the end of the world. Some of them are definitely smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, like you mentioned reputation damage just then. Um, like outside of that, you also mentioned um, earlier on in the conversation disclosure laws and you know the NDB legislation locally. Has that kind of changed the approaches to crisis comms plans at all? I mean, presumably that now there's a regulatory requirement to kind of report certain things within certain timeframes. So I'm assuming it's kind of baked into many of them. I mean, the good thing about the OAIC reporting that people need to do, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, which is where the Privacy Commissioner lives, the good thing about that is that the even though the data gets reported, it's not, it's it's basically anonymous. Mm. Um, the only time it becomes not anonymous is when 
there might be a report there of 250,000 customer records get breached and everyone knows that they came from a particular store, from a particular yep. business because the story got reported as, you know, anthony.com got pinged, for example. Um, so some people can put the data together that way. But the, the data is largely anonymous. And the idea is to let people know what's going on, not necessarily to out people for being the wrong, doing the wrong thing. I think there's a really interesting element to disclosure and in a, in a crisis, and that's that it doesn't have to be bad. And we often think, it, because the word crisis in itself brings a whole bunch of negative feeling. Yep. Um, but if you look at what's happened in the world, organisations that have handled crisis well have enhanced their reputation. Hmm. Um, I mean, I often think there's there's a great example. We use this. We've used this in a couple of presentations we've done at various conferences. But we talk about the difference between the Red Cross Blood Bank Blood Services' reaction to its breach, um, which was amazingly, it was an amazing reaction. They were they were fast. They had accurate information. The CEO of the organisation stood up and said, "It's our fault. We are sorry." In fact, if you go and find the YouTube video of that press conference, the, she says "sorry" about half a dozen times, like unabashedly takes full responsibility for the incident. Mm. And we've got to remember that that incident was actually the result of a external third-party contractor making a mistake for something that was in the public domain for, I think, only about 24 hours before it was discovered and taken down. The actual chance of damage to specific individuals was very, very low, but they were public, they were open about it, they explained what happened, they explained what they did about it, and they took responsibility. We're going to contrast it with BP. Right. And this one's a famous case study. It's all over. You, you can actually go and look in academic journals about this case study. They had an oil platform fire some years ago. Um, a number of people died. There was massive environmental damage caused by oil leakage from the platform after, during the fire. Huge environmental and personal disaster. Um, the, pressure, the media pressure in that was pretty high, obviously. The CEO of the organisation snapped at the journalist and said, you know what, guys, I'd like to get my life back. Um, which was an interesting reaction after several dozen people died. Um, and he was a bit concerned because he'd had a sleepless night. The other side of that was that they never took responsibility for it. Mm. They, they said, well, we leased the platform, so the platform safety is not our problem. They're contract employees, so they're not our problem. There was, a, there was no admission of what actually happened or taking responsibility for it. I mean, if, if something goes pear-shaped and the brown stuff hits the rotating blades and it's your and it's on your watch, you're responsible. doesn't matter who owned it. doesn't matter what happened. If you're there, take responsibility, accurate information, timely delivery to the right people at the right time. Sing it. Uh, and I think not just for crisis comms, I think that message could probably apply uh, so much more broadly in society, but that's a different uh, podcast, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah. yeah, look, I mean, we're, we're kind of closing out here time-wise, but um, a couple of things I would be keen to get to just before we kind of finish up. And, you know, one, one of the things is, you know, you as an organization are, you know, your, your air quotes bat phone rings and people kind of call you when that brown stuff does hit the rotating blades, as you so eloquently put it. Um, so you're going to jump in when the company's had an incident already. And I'm assuming that's more difficult to do, obviously, because you haven't got a pre-built plan and Everyone's kind of scrambling around trying to figure out what's going on. And 
like, what's your experience there? You know, what's, what are the, is there anything you can do better? Like not you as in you, but um, an organization out there could do better if they are in that sort of situation where it's all gone pear-shaped. They don't have a comms plan. What do they do? Look, the, the problem is, and we've been, we've literally had those, that situation happen not so long ago. The challenge is that the people involved are doing two things at once. They're trying to manage a communications program and they're trying to deal with a crisis. Um, and that dealing with that crisis might mean restoring data, um, making finding out what actually was exfiltrated, for example, finding out what the level of compromise has been, understanding how to stop it from, you know, because often with a compromise, it might start and you'll detect it starting, but how do you stop it from continuing? Like if you see one folder of data being exfiltrated off a box, how do you stop folders two through 500? You know, you're so busy trying to stop the problem that you may not actually give thought to how you've got to communicate about the problem. So, it, I mean, it, it, preparation is always best. The companies that have thought about it and written something down, it's a, the best place to start. We've been phoned in where we're literally finding out, so you, you're from company X, what do you do? Because we don't know every company in Australia mm. and there's several thousands of them, millions maybe. You know, we don't know everyone. So we need to actually find out what it is, what is it that you do? What's your exposure? What what are we talking about here? You know, where was where was the data? Was it in a box in a cupboard under the stairs? Was it a cloud service? Was it you know? Do you have your own data center? Was it in a co-host location? You know, we have all these questions that we need to go and find out so we can understand what to talk about. Because when we know, the more we know about the organisation, the the clearer the story can be. You know, I can say, right, we're dealing with a family-owned retail business that, you know, has grown, has had, has got, you know, 30 sites now, they're franchised, you know, for have, just having all that information beforehand makes a difference because we can sit there and go, right, we know who we're talking about. We understand the exposures. We understand who they need to go and contact. But when you get, when you're literally parachuting in in the middle, um, you know, I, I think of all those soldiers around the world who have had to parachute into, you know, highly militarized situations where things are going pear-shaped and they've got to land on the ground and wonder what they're doing. You know, we've, we've got to spend that time understanding that. And that, that makes it yep. quite challenging. But we've been, you know, we pat ourselves on the back. We've never had anything go completely pear-shaped having done that. Um, but, that, you know, if you want to mitigate risk, and we're, 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 at the end of the day, all the things you do in cyber, whether we're talking about crisis comms today or all the other topics that you've covered over the last, I'm not sure how many years you've been doing this, but it's been a while. Um, we're talking about risk mitigation. It is the yep. big topic all the time. What's the risk of your communications going pear-shaped? Best way to mitigate risk is by thinking about it and actually having plans in place. Yep, most definitely. So one last question. Um, you know, when, One of the things I've kind of observed is the, I don't know, the frequency or the volume of stories that are hitting the news. Um, and I would say kind of mainstream media these days, you know, it's not just the kind of obscure IT and cyber websites or, or news sites. It's actually more broadly kind of everywhere. And um, mm. like with that, there's a, a kind of a natural fatigue. I think that comes along for the viewing population, people in our industry and outside of it. Um, so the question would be then, like, is are people paying less attention, um, or do you feel like maybe at some level they're they're getting used to what good looks like when it comes to crisis comms, and then they can spot when an organization isn't kind of doing it well? It's it's really interesting. I think there's there's two sides to this. One is the fast moving nature of today's 
news cycle can actually work in your favour because there's always someone else tomorrow. There's always another story that can come and push you off the front page. Um, and that can work in your favour. Um, I mean, the, the, the you know, I often say to people, the best time to have something go wrong is when Apple releases a new product. Um, and the worst time for something to go wrong is about two weeks after Apple's released a new product because the news cycle's quietened down and there's a gap. Um, so, you know, if you can organise your breaches around those sorts of things, fantastic. But, uh, but it is, you know... It, the news cycle does move fast. And we talk to people in media training and say, look, when I started in, in the media and it was largely print, we would publish in print 30 stories a month. That would be that would be a pretty big month for a magazine, 30 individual stories. Now, I was, when I edited Lifehacker, I would, when I, the first time I edited Lifehacker, I was doing eight stories a day. Yeah. Um, the last time I worked on that publication, I was I was a contributor and I was only doing four stories a day. And we were publishing every, every, there was a fresh piece of content every 30 minutes um, on that site. And that was yeah. one of five sites in the family. So that was, there was a huge amount of content going through. And you sit there and go, well, well that's, they're churning through the stuff. But it also means that bad news disappears quickly unless yeah. you keep on, unless it keeps on giving. Um, and by not extrapolating, not exaggerating, sticking to the facts, you be, you want, what you want to do is become boring. So you yep. get pushed off the page. That sounds like the the absolute Yoda quote to uh, to end the conversation on. Um, be boring enough to be forgotten when it comes to crisis <laughs> comms. I love it. Um, Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, been a really awesome conversation. Definitely, I've learned a lot. So yeah, very much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much to Anthony for joining us for that conversation. And as always, thank you for listening to the Get Saw Brazilian podcast. Jump into our back catalog of episodes and like, subscribe, and leave us a review. For now, stay safe, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode. <laughs>